In many ways, the COVID-19 was a big boost for a return of global government. There was greater room for greater collaboration to confront the reality that the countries of the global south have been facing all along. Copa Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Hi and welcome to another episode of Corporate Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Here we give a stage to voices, opinions and research that address the broad and decisive issues of global cooperation. One of the challenges in making this podcast is including truly global expertise. It is easy to just fall back to the usual sources and experts from European and American universities and research institutes that are comparatively easy to find and connect with. But a podcast about global cooperation would be severely lacking without other perspectives that challenge our familiar ideas about global interactions. So we are very happy that Professor Sifa Mandlatzondi from the University of Johannesburg in South Africa agreed to join us for this episode. He looks at the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for global cooperation through a Global South lens and discusses how relations between the members of the BRICS group of states shape the group's relationship with the outside world. Sifamantla Zondi is Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Johannesburg. Prior to that, he headed the Institute for Global Dialogue at the University of South Africa. He is also the chair of the South African BRICS Think Tank Council and a member of the South African Planning Commission, responsible for international partnerships. He has published widely on topics ranging from the decolonization of knowledge and research methodology to Africa's international relations and foreign policy to the BRICS platform. We will link some of his works in the episode description for you. And we also welcome back as host for this episode, Professor Janart Skolte of Leiden University, the co-director of the Center for Global Cooperation Research. But before we switch over to the conversation between Sifa Mandla and Jan, a few words on our research feature for this episode. This time, we speak to Dr. Karolina Kluszewska about her research project at the Center. Her project foregrounds the very different and competing paradigms that donor countries and organizations are imposing on aid recipients. She takes Tajikistan, a small post-communist country, as an example to show how the different development models and world visions from those outside actors shape Tajik external relations as well as local priorities and views. More on that later. Now, over to you, Sifamandla and Jan, and a warm welcome to Copa Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Corporate Radio, our latest episode on global cooperation in times of COVID. Uh, my name is Jan Schulte, and we are today very privileged to have with us Professor Sifamandla Zondi of the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Professor Zondi is active in researching global health, especially from perspective of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So we're very privileged to have this input. Thank you and welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Anne, and good day to everybody. It's a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today. Great. Thanks so much. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing uh, on global health and global health governance, especially from perspective of BRICS? I have for a long time been interested in the agency of the Global South in global governance, especially in relation to defending the idea of global governance against permutations of more nationalistic ideas that kind of skeptical of the global, kind of skeptical of the supranational, kind of skeptical of globalism and globalization and, and so on. So I've been very interested in how the global south defends the idea of global governance 
in spite of its unhappiness with how it is structured and need to reform. And uh, secondly, their agency in relation now to making arguments about how it might be reformed, how it might be improved, and how it might respond to the needs of those that sit on the sidelines of the system of global governance. And uh, I have been working on those particular issues for the past 18 years, 19 years. And over the period of time, uh, part of global governance that I've been interested in is development global governance, government related to issues of development, issues around the UN, the UNDP, the, the idea of human development and its indexes, but also uh, health governance. I've done a number of projects that look at uh, the state of health governance and how health government might be improved, uh, the multilateralism of health governance, international cooperation uh, to respond to health crisis, and uh, especially with the Asian flu, uh, and then the Ebola, and then HIV AIDS, and all of those are very interested in how global governance may assist countries that are otherwise uh, weakened in terms of their own national health governance to kind of level the ground and promote more equity in response to what are quite shared health challenges across the world. And the current projects are looking at ways in which health governance globally could enable countries, especially of the global south, the countries in Africa, to achieve the SDG goals relevant to it. How health governance may enable the continent to get rid of communicable diseases and non-communicable diseases, or at least reduce the disease burden that has affected the continent in terms of economy, in terms of livelihood, the quality of life for people, and even affects the quality of our democracy and all of that. So how do you get global governance, health governance, to enable the continent to exercise more health sovereignty, of more sovereignty over its own health, uh, build stronger health systems, put together more effective health policies and, and so on. And uh, the last part related to the other project I'm doing relates to uh, the BRICS. And our particular focus is not just the BRICS and the world and stuff. It is particularly focused on how do you enhance the agency of BRICS by strengthening its internal coordination. Uh, a lot of studies look at the BRICS and what it can do out there and all that. So they look at, at, at the golden goose as if it is completely golden and stuff, so it now needs to fix the world. Now we look at the internal break. To what extent do Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa cooperate among themselves? intra BRICS cooperation, how sound is it? intra BRICS governance, how sound is it? Does it enable BRICS then to have greater agency outside itself in the world? Or is the BRICS internal coordination and all that weak and thereby weakens its ability to champion UN reform, for example, mm -hmm. champion reform of the WTO and all that? Uh, is the BRIC itself in such a position that it is a unified, strong, cohesive actor to be able to play the role many expect it to do? So that is what we're doing, and we're hoping that we deepen that that research and they'll be looking for partners if I on your side or not. What do you think about ideas of internal cohesion as a basis for external agency? That uh, your external agency is dependent on your internal cohesion. That charity begins at home in a way. 
Yeah, a lot of key points there. Can I pick them up maybe one by one? One of them, you started very early on by speaking about global governance and its problems, but I was hearing you say it's not the principle of global governance that's a problem. It's the way that it is put into practice, the way that it is currently organized. The debate that is often happening in in Europe is you are for or against global governance. So in principle, it's globalism versus anti-globalism. But what I'm hearing you say is not necessarily anti-globalism, but problems in the current way of organizing global governance. Am I getting that right? Yes, that is why our biggest preoccupation is any effort or any threats to global governance. We are more preoccupied with the understanding the threats to global governance and preventing the weakening of global governance. This is why our biggest worry of the African continent during the time of Donald Trump and the rise of the right-wing general, especially in Europe, is their thinking uh, around withdrawal from international cooperation, thinking around uh, attack on institutions of global governance and international agencies. For us, those agencies are an important leveling ground where they enable a very weak Malawi to operate in international relations alongside a very strong Singapore. And for us, the institutions of global governance are absolutely essential, are very critical even for our own goals of enhancing our own agencies and all of that. And therefore, we get worried about debates about the very essence of global governance and multilateralism because we see them as very well interlinked. And it is a debate in, in Europe, we know we watch it, and a debate in North America as well, we watch it, which is about either or. For us, it is about global governance in principle as a necessity, as an absolute necessity across the lines. The left and the right in, in our side favors the global governance because global governance is absolutely critical for weaker states all over the world generally. And we worry about how you strengthen it and how to reform it. In other parts of the world, they're worrying about how to work in it so that you strengthen the ability of the states to exercise their own freedom, they are more legitimate, they are more sovereign and stuff. We're hoping for reducing the power of the nation state and growing the power of supranational agencies. Yeah, if we look at the specific context of the COVID-19 epidemic and the global governance response to that epidemic. What is your perspective? What kind of report card, what kind of grade would you give global governance in its response to the COVID-19 epidemic? We have a, a small little discussion very recently where we generally agreed that COVID-19 was very good for global governance because it was coming at a time of the rise of the right wing and populism. And that was really gaining momentum in a very strong way. But the ideas of right-wingers and ultra-nationalists were found not helpful to help us deal with a cross-national crisis like COVID-19. They turned out to be completely useless against a global crisis like COVID-19. So COVID-19 almost like gave us a very resounding response to the ideas of the right-wing and ultra-nationalists and skeptics, those who are skeptics about the international environment. So in many ways, therefore, the COVID-19 was a big boost for a return of global governance. We're actually discussing putting together a special edition that looks at COVID-19 and the return of global governance. Because at the same time, we had earlier looked at the COVID-19 and the return of the nation state. 
now go further there and say now, but this nation state is not a nation state that is rebellious from global governance, but it's a nation state that is participating in global governance and is working on the basis of global norms and global rules. And uh, it's not an esoteric state that is standing out. And uh, it's a state that is a key constituent of global governance. It understands its limitations under current conditions that no single country is able to, to provide a full response to a COVID-19 issue. So they're forced to cooperate with each other. So the return of the state happens at the same time as the return of global governance, which help us to argue that it is not an either-or. The, the strengthening of the state is not a weakening of global governance. A government of the state can be an, actually a boost for global governance because it's a particular kind of state that recognizes the importance of global governance. And global governance as a collection of states still, still a collection mm. of states mm. deciding on what are common goods, uh, what are global commons around the world. And therefore, the United Nations and its convening power, uh, the United Nations and its ability to generate ideas. You know, there's that beautiful book on United Nations and, uh, and the power of ideas, which was making an argument almost 20 years ago that one of the biggest value of the international system of governance is that it can incubate ideas that cut across borders that would help the whole world to speak in one world. Mm. So the idea of development, for example, mm. is given a boost by this international logic. The idea of food security, the idea of health governance, all of these ideas are incubated by the international system. We hardly ever notice that. And indeed, in this particular case, for example, the idea of risk-adjusted strategy as a response to COVID-19 is incubated by the United Nations system. Uh, the idea of building back better, which is now a big talk of town, it comes from that. The idea of vaccine nationalism as a problem comes from that. The idea uh, of vaccine imperialism, uh, the, the idea of vaccine cooperation, the, the idea of COVAX, cooperation on vaccine. There, there's so many ideas that are incubated by the UN and therefore it was useful for us. Uh, second, the, the global governance system also helped develop a certain sort of norms and standards and a certain set of measures that would apply in all countries across the world. If you look at the risk-adjusted strategy and would it aid key actions, it's incubated by the global governance system and it gets applied in every country from a big United States to a very small Sao Tome and Principe. The global governance system has enabled us to have a kind of a shared uh, approach to a global problem. And therefore, it was very useful. Uh, the kind of knowledge that was generated by the World Health Organization, even under huge stress and all sorts of difficulties, how it placed the idea of science-based public policy was very helpful at a time when it could have been sidetracked by conservative ideas all over the world and stuff like that. It was weak in some ways, but its strength for us were greater than its weaknesses. Mm. And its weaknesses were a big reminder that we need to strengthen global government. Its weaknesses were not fundamental. Its weaknesses were related to how it did what it could do, it needed to do. That's how we see it. No, that's powerful. That's powerful. What is your reaction to attempts to build alternative sites of global governance on the argument that the United Nations system, the traditional United Nations multilateralism, falls short in a number of areas, uh, particularly when it comes to resources or when it comes to bureaucratic bottlenecks or, or other criticisms that one sometimes hears. 
And that next to the United Nations system, instead, one sees efforts through the so-called Group of 20 and informal global governance or private global governance through the Global Vaccines Alliance, the Global Fund, in which the United Nations system is at least marginalized and sometimes even excluded. Uh, how do you regard those multiple global governances, as, as it were, <laughs> when one looks at health? It is a beautiful idea because what it says is that there are contestations about the global and the contestations about the global are much better to contend with than the contestations of the global. The two sides, there's a side that contests the global and there's two sides, there's a side that contests about which form of the global. Mm-hmm. We are better served dealing with the search for alternative globals than those that are searching for the alternative to the global. I guess you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because those are the ones that end up with the smaller groups of countries or stronger countries. The power is might and unilateralism and unipolarism. So the multiplicity of the global, of global governance is a beautiful idea and it's also not a new idea. It's been there for a long period of time. The many institutions that were they were established because of unhappiness about the efficiency of the United Nations. They continued to cooperate with the United Nations. Even the G20 was meant to be a kind of like an alternative, branching out of this in 2009 and uh, create a more agile institutions of willing and capable state representing a broad spectrum of countries and all the regions of the world. That was that it. Almost like an alternative to the United Nations. In the end, it has become a major boost to the United Nations itself. Mm-hmm. But many ideas are incubated in these platforms and still brought to the United Nations in the hope that the United Nations will then take them on and put them. But also, it is also a sign of a breathing system, like the breathing system of a fish, that uh, some ideas you take through the United Nations and when you start, you take them outside the United Nations, but they end up back in the United Nations because you can incubate them quicker elsewhere and still bring them back to the United Nations. And thirdly, is that many of these things that happen out there, they still seek to achieve the United Nations objective. So we, we're getting a number of parallel lines opening up that seek to really give credence to the very idea that the United Nations uh, exists. Which means we must be open to the possibility that the United Nations is not just an institution, but it is an idea. Mm. So an institution may die too, but the idea should not die. Okay. So these things, even if they threaten the United Nations and destroy it and create it, as long as the idea of the United Nations gets to live through all whatever it is created, that is okay. The United Nations has a recognition that all countries of the world are equal, that all are equally affected by global threats and that they have each other to cooperate with. That idea, whatever form it takes, we we welcome it. The the real threat is the rejection of the very idea on which the United Nations is based, which is global government. Mm. That is a problem and much lateral, and that is what would not succeed at all. Okay, let's talk about BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, a loose sometimes also formalized a collaboration of so-called emerging powers in 
global affairs and also global governance more specifically. You were saying that uh, you're doing some specific research about coordination among the among the BRICS and also coordination among the BRICS in the context of global health governance. What's happening there? What's your assessment? Our sense is that the BRICS have evolved over the past 12 years into a major voice globally. And it has also evolved into a complex organization internally. It doesn't have a secretariat, it doesn't have a specific institution, but it now has institutions because it has the new development bank. The new development bank is the most concrete bricks you can tangible with the building called the new development bank. And then this now has offices in all five BRICS countries. So there's an institutionalization of BRICS even in a concrete term. There's been an institutionalization of it in normative terms for a period of time, which is institutionalization, even in the creation of working groups. There are over over a hundred working groups now in BRICS that deal with specific things, including four in the area of health, including one on vaccines and one on universal health care. So we've been seeing this evolution of working groups within of ministerial programs uh, of sub-BRICS platforms as an important building of a brick into what it is becoming. We've also been very interested in how the BRICS is now also expanding beyond the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, through what is called a BRICS outreach. So now we talk about BRICS Plus, which draws in just over 80 countries into the BRICS fold. There is 40 African countries that participated in the BRICS Plus thing that took place here. There were over 50 that were hosted in China, in Sanya, in 2018, 2017. And they keep growing and all that. So we're recognizing that, that BRICS itself is becoming global. And the second thing is that BRICS is built upon countries that believe in global governance anyway. A lot stronger than, uh, than many realize. That what actually brings them together is that they all share concerns about any form of rise of unilateralism, the rise of parallel systems, the rise of moves that might be seen to be weakening global governance and global multilateralism. And the BRICS also position themselves as agents of change within global governance and multilateralism to strengthen it. So that's why the idea of inclusion and inclusiveness is very frequent in every BRICS meeting. And that the BRICS are also, by virtue of who the BRICS is, who the countries are, the BRICS itself as a platform is finding itself mediating between various impulses that exist within the institutions of global government. Because Russia represents a particular form of attitude towards global government, more dominant and more tied to realist notions of international relations and throwing your power around and use of military might and stuff like that. China is rising as almost like a new realist too, but with greater focus on economic power and all of that. That those two belong in the permanent seats of the United Nations and therefore in the global south should be seen as part of the problem. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> they want to maintain the current order and the stuff like that. And then the three, Brazil, India and South Africa, belong to the IPSA as well which is opposed to the global power asymmetry, which uh, Russia and China are part of. Now, the BRICS have to help the two dynamics coexist and find a way for talking between these two. Uh-huh. And that is why we see that elements of trying to build a consensus within BRICS about how to deal with this very clear IPSA view 
for transformation of global government. And there's this very clear Russia-China prevarication on this transformation. And where does the consensus lie? So we're very interested in this internal divergence and how the BRICS are going to build that and whether this might incubate ideas that might help unite the global north and the global south broader. Ah, okay. Because Brazil and China reflect the views of the global north in global governance reform and stuff. And then the others represent the views of the global south. What does it mean to have a north and a south within a BRICS? And how does it incubate these new ideas and do bridge building between these two binaries? that make up the big debate on global government. So that element is in our focus. With regards to the BRICS and global health governance, those elements come in as well. Russia and China become manufacturers of Mm COVID-19. The others become consumers of COVID-19. Secondly, Russia and China become big players in the geopolitics of COVID-19 and vaccines. The other three become part of the big champions for international cooperation, including within COVAX. This enables BRICS to play two different roles at the same time. But how it manages this depends on the chair of the BRICS for that particular year. Hmm. Last year, it was Russia. And um, our sense is that the Russians tried to get the BRICS to avoid these tensions and then focus on the economic issues, on economic cooperation, on scientific cooperation and, and stuff like that. And our sense is that with the Indians now in, in the lead, they are confronting the issues of equity, health equity, and equity in global governance and, and governance of health issues and, and issues of that nature. It's an interesting dynamic in the sense that then the brick of 2020 may not be the same as the brick of 2021. Yes, yes. And the brick of 2020 was not the same as the brick of 2019, where it was Brazil. And Brazil under Bolsonaro is somewhere a little closer to the global north than a Brazil of Lula. Mm-hmm. And that added a huge dimension where Brazil was also caught up between these two dynamics and it sought to find a middle ground somewhere. And that gives BRIC very different identities over the time. And that speaks to the ideas people talk about, that multilateralism offer opportunities for countries to operate, to have more pragmatic cooperation and more pragmatic approaches to global governance issues because they have to deal with it internally for them to deal with it externally. Mm-hmm. When the IPSA countries meet, they don't have any huge moral dilemma about how they're going to position themselves on this issue or that issue. But when the BRICS meet, they have to be careful that whatever they say about out there might apply to some members in here. Which makes for <laughs> a very interesting yeah, dimension yeah. that requires a strategic ambiguity, I call it. A strategic ambiguity, which is deliberate to appeal to both sides yeah. while moving things uh, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. If we turn to this question of global governance and equity, which has been underlying, in fact, our whole conversation, when you look at the experience of global governance in COVID-19 and its relationship to global inequity, what kind of relationship do you see here? Is this bringing out and emphasizing and deepening the inequities of global order, the COVID-19 experience through global governance, 
or on the contrary, is this an occasion in which inequities are made very visible and confronted and perhaps diminished? What's your reading on the relationship between COVID, global governance and global fairness? Yes, you know, in, in the initial stages, especially uh, toward the middle of 2020, we got a sense that because COVID-19 was presenting itself as an existential threat to the global north and an existential threat to the global south, there was greater room for greater collaboration to confront the reality that the countries of the global south have been facing all along. And then we thought it was very useful that we got very interesting noises coming from a very right-wing government in Italy about global health governance when Italy was in the throes of a COVID-19 outbreak in May, June, July last year. But we have seen also that as countries with greater ability find solutions to their challenges, they are resting on their laurels and they're now resting on their, on their own ability and kind of withdrawing from international cooperation. And that is best exemplified by countries' positions on the India-South Africa proposal for the waiver of the intellectual property rights related to the manufacturing at the WTO. The disagreements, the cleavages, the inequities completely show themselves up again. At the beginning of COVID-19, there was hope. At the end of COVID-19, that hope is, is put asunder. It's mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it diminished in very significant way because at the beginning of COVID-19, it was what we could do together and how we could cooperate and how we could all do something, how we could protect each other, close each other's borders and, and all of those kind of things. And at the end of 2020, with the arrival of vaccines, the rich can access it. The, the poor will have to see how to do and then you get uh, ideas like countries saying, don't export this vaccine until our population has been sufficiently good. So they kind of recede back to inward thinking. And that is also beginning to show the inequities uh, in a very big way in terms of access to resources, access to science, uh, the ability to control the distribution of medicines and the ability to care for others. Once countries have reached a particular percentage of their vaccination, they start to not worry about this global problem because it's about what in it for us. It shows that global governance has not always been about moral decisions. It's not only been about enlightened decision-making. It has been reinforced by shared challenges and a sense that we cannot do it on our own. So it was not some favor groups of countries were doing for another. It was out of existential threats, existential decisions. That is what the COVID-19 shows. When there's an existential threat, we cooperate. When that threat is diminished, we forget to cooperate. Which means, going forward, global governance will be reinforced by a sense that global challenges are shared. And the, the global system, the world has an, this ability of reminding us constantly every five years, every 10 years, that the challenges we face are shared. Be it a migration issue, or be it the health issues that we say, be it climate change issues and all that. The crisis tends to remind us all the time that we need to strengthen global governance. And that is what our hope is. Reasoning about it and talking to each other about it that we need has its limits because the impulses towards national self-sufficiency, uh, the power of the might, and uh, what we can do for ourselves are so strong that we keep reverting back to fragmentation, 
to unilateralism and all of that. But the, the crisis kept reminding us that we need to clap together. Right. So in a way, COVID-19 was a blessing in disguise because it reminded us. But it just hope that over time, you incubate those ideas and you, you strengthen them. But there's nothing you can do about a Germany arriving at a position where it feels it has overcome it at home. It doesn't need to overcome it elsewhere. What needs then is now the power of global dialogue. That's why we think global dialogue is absolutely important. Because where the crisis doesn't do the reminders, the dialogue can may actually also do the reminders that we all facing the same thing. If you allow it to continue to fester in the global south or in Africa, it will return mm. to Europe via migration, via international connection. So that moral discussion um, might help where the crisis has subsided. Yeah. So it, it's a bit of both. We, we are in a situation where we've made progress, but it seems that we also take two steps back every time. So it becomes a continuous process of searching for this new global order, this new commitment to a global order. And I guess it is a lifelong process of convincing each other that we need each other and we need a more global system of cooperation. That's great. And I sense we're moving to a, a, a rounding off of what has COVID-19 meant for global governance. And maybe if I could finish with one question to you. Looking at the experiences that we've had with global cooperation, global governance and COVID-19, what are the best positive lessons that you would say we should take forward? As you say, there will be next crises to come whether it's a financial crisis or a migration crisis, a climate crisis or a health crisis, there will be other crises to come next time. What would you say have been the best positive lessons, the, the best positive experiences that we've had from the global governance response to COVID-19 that we should try to pick up again next time? I think finding a language, a common language for us to confront a global crisis was an important one. We all spoke the same language on COVID-19. And I think language must never be underestimated because the very idea of United Nations is a language itself, United Nations. And that language has helped us to keep the system, even at a time when there was no real reason to be united. But the language got us united. The language of multilateralism, the language of building back better is going to sustain us going forward, that we need to build back better. But what is to build back better? It is to build in cooperation. It is to build uh, without leaving anyone behind. It is to build inclusively. So that language it can help us even when there are no real reasons to uh, to cooperate. So I, I like how the language was crafted in the crisis to keep us going. The second thing for me, it is the, the spirit of cooperation and international cooperation. We really cooperated a lot better in 2020 than at any other time in the past 20 years, in my view. I stand to be corrected. They have cooperated because of the existential crisis a lot better. There was very clear sense of what we can cooperate on. There was very clear sense that we needed to cooperate. For once, in 2020, there was only one country that spoke in dissent, dissenting from the spirit of cooperation. It was the Trump United States. For once, there was unanimity about the idea of cooperation. Uh, we can quibble about the quality of that cooperation and all that, but we, where we stand to have cooperation, to have weak cooperation, to have cooperation with leaky results is better than to have no cooperation at all. And that's very important. And another positive for me is how 
COVID-19 and global governance elevated the non-political mm. as the basis for global governance. Uh, suddenly, global governance was about stuff that is not political or security oriented because it always been founded on uh, ideas relating to political and security issues. But suddenly, it was a human issue. It was a human welfare issue. It was a quality of human beings and human cooperation that was important. I think that is why uh, we saw also a greater and more pronounced awareness, harnessing of the idea of solidarity in a system that has been used to other ideas like international cooperation, which is what we are used for and all that. The idea of solidarity became a very important. The idea of alliance around human, human issues became a very interesting thing in global governance. That I don't think global governance had always realized the importance of solidarity across the system, irrespective of your location in the global south and global north, emerging underdeveloped countries. So the idea of solidarity became more pronounced. Suddenly we saw a lot of countries pulling their forces together. So the idea of COVAX, for example, and all the other alliances that were created all over, that were, in my view, a, would be an important heritage for global governance going forward after this. And lastly, for me, it is the idea that the United Nations is absolutely critical, but it has weaknesses. It creates a momentum for the reform of the United Nations both the management reform and the reform of its decision-making system. There is no one who doesn't realize that the United Nations need to reform if we are going to confront future crises better than we have done this time. Thank you. Because if there, was, if there would be an educational crisis or a climate crisis, would UNFCCC respond the way the World Health Organization responded? The, the, this time. What was in the World Health Organization that enabled to respond a little better than maybe a UNEP would have responded to a climate crisis? I, I think it has generated for us a, a lot of impetus for discussing how do you approach the question of reform of the United Nations, not as an us against them thing, but as a shared human desire for a better management of global commons. That is what I think. Thank you. That's a hopeful. <laughs> Very optimistic. <brother. laughs> and realistically, no, realistically hopeful. I want, I want to say realistically hopeful overall assessment. And, and, and thank you for that overall wide ranging uh, and also deep analysis of global governance in the light of uh, the, 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 the COVID experience. A very powerful case for global governance that I think you've made. Uh, at the same time, a powerful case for alternative globalisms. Um, a lot of insight. Thank you for the insight on what is going on and the dynamics around the BRICS. I think we learn a lot from this as well. Uh, and the overall striving for, for reforms within good foundations of the United Nations system. Thanks very, very much, uh, Sipa Mandla Zondi, Professor at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa, cooperating with us in this Corpora Radio uh, on global cooperation and global governance of health. Thanks so much and uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Much appreciate. All the best. Research feature. In today's research feature, we talk to Dr. Karolina Kluszewska, who joined the center as postdoctoral research fellow in February 2021. At the center, Karolina is part of the research group Global Cooperations and Diverse Conceptions of World Order. 
In her research project, Carolina investigates how recipient countries of development cooperation navigate the competing conceptions of development and world order of donor countries. Welcome, Carolina. So maybe just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Global Cooperation Research, and uh, this is now my main uh, institutional home at the moment, even if all institutional homes are virtual. But I'm also a research associate at the Institute of the Middle East, Central Asia and Caucasus Studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and an associate senior research fellow at the Tomsk State University, where I also teach regularly in Russia, although also virtually in the last year. And generally, there has been lots of moving um, involved in my personal and professional trajectories. So first of all, moving back in time, I grew up in Poland and then moved to Italy for my bachelor's studies at the University of Milan. I then obtained an MA degree at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and this is also where I did my PhD at the School of International Relations. And just very briefly, in terms of my postdoctoral research, I was based at the University Sorbonne Paris Nord, also known as Paris 13, Tajik National University in Tajikistan, and before coming to Duisburg at the University of Gießen also in Germany, but then eventually, uh, I think that for everyone doing research on broadly defined global cooperation, all the roads lead to the Center for Global Cooperation Research at the end. That would be awesome. So tell us a little bit about your project at the Center. My project explores competing conceptions of world order in the context of development aid. So usually aid or development aid is about transfer of funding, infrastructure, technical or so-called expert knowledge, right, from the so-called donor countries or international organizations to um, the developing countries, countries that receive aid. But along with that, there is also this um, normative aspect of development aid, which is about promotion of certain norms, ideas, value systems, visions of what development actually means, how to reach development, different understandings of modernity, progress, future, etc. This is what I think we can theorize of as conceptions of world orders. These days we hear a lot about these different big conceptions, right? The Western, but also non-Western ones, Russian, Chinese, etc. How these big actors on the international arena, how they see the world. But in my research project, I'm taking a reverse perspective and I'm trying to zoom at the field where these conceptions are projected, where they are enacted. So these are precisely the countries that receive international aid because these are the countries that are subject to interventions from a multiplicity of these big donors, simultaneous interventions. So this means that countries like Tajikistan, which is a small country in Central Asia, one of the post-Soviet republics, that is my main kind of case study, my field research study, these countries have been subject to interventions from the US, European Union, a number of European countries, but also Russia, China, recently uh, India, Turkey and Gulf states. So just to make it brief, I'm really interested in how these actors on the ground in these settings like Tajikistan, how they actually understand these various imaginaries that are advanced from all different sides and actually that are very much conflicting, we might think, right? So what Russia wants to do in Tajikistan and what the EU uh, wants Tajikistan to become are completely different visions. So I want to, to explore how actors on the ground, government officials, academics, local civil society actors, how they navigate these heterogeneous influences and how they make them their own. So how they also manage to factor in their own conceptions of how their country should look like. 
because these countries have actually a very difficult role that is to make everyone happy, right? They need to maintain very good relations with a broad range of international actors to maintain a high influx of aid. And this is why it's very tricky for such countries to navigate these conceptions on a very local level. Interesting. And how do you approach this? Do you conduct interviews or some kind of field research? How does that work? That is a very tricky question about uh, fieldwork in the <laughs> in the times of the pandemic, and uh, because my my field research very much relies on long term immersion and this kind of ethnographic sensitivity, and this is especially the case in very difficult socio political contexts where you need to build trust uh, first. So it's not only about interviews; it's also about building this long standing personal connections with your research participants, and this obviously cannot be done via WhatsApp and Zoom. So, of course, all of this has been on hold, but not only on for me, for many people who do a similar kind of research. But having said that, I have a lot of material from my postdoctoral research. So in this sense, a pandemic is also a good way to sit down and analyze what I already have and make the most of it. Of course, there will be gaps that I hope to fill once it is possible to travel again and do field research. But still, we can build a skeleton now. Maybe let me dig a bit deeper into that. Do you have an idea or a feeling of how the pandemic has kind of influenced these donor and recipient country relationships? Mm -hmm. The pandemic has very much reshaped donor-recipient relations because what we have seen in the context of post-Soviet Central Asia that actually donors that we did not see before that much on the scene were much quicker in responding to the needs on the ground. And this has to do with lots of issues, for example, China as a country takes decisions rather centrally, right? So it can send aid to Central Asia very quickly. And this is what happened. Whereas in European countries or at the EU level, it takes a long time because the decision-making processes are much more complicated. So then several months pass. And at that time, already there are other actors. So of course, it's not only about aid, humanitarian aid, etc. It's also about gaining more influence on the ground. So we have seen this shift already. So this kind of vaccine diplomacy at play here. Exactly, exactly. So the winners here are uh, in Central Asia. It's mostly Russia, China, but also countries in Central Asia like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan that ate their more resource poor neighbors like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Well, wow, that's really very current and very interesting. Some very great insight, I think. Do you have any additional findings you could maybe share with us? So from an IR perspective, I think that studying such small resource poor and aid dependent, very largely peripheral states like Tajikistan allows us to see that they are not only passive recipients of these outside frameworks and aid, but that they learn how to exploit the rivalries between different donors to their benefit, right? So this shows us that for these countries, this global competition on a local level can actually become a source of the agency and the main resource that they play in how they position themselves vis-a-vis -vis international actors. But what I also think is very interesting in the case of Tajikistan, it shows us that these big different conceptions of world order are not actually as incompatible as they seem. Right. So on the first side, it might seem that the government's models promoted by the EU and Russia and China are completely different with regard to norms, to kind of uh, models of decision making, etc. But actually, looking at these small actors shows us that they very skillfully navigate these different conceptions of our order and they create these hybrid micro conceptions for their own. 
So it means that actually it is possible to combine them. And as researchers, I believe that it is interesting to study such small peripheral cases because they teach us a lot what can be done, what can be achieved at an international level as well, that this competition is not necessarily only a negative thing, that there can be a way for dialogue and cooperation. So can I maybe intervene there and ask if you would say that based on the idea of a vision for world order, these actors like in the Tajikistan case, are not really following a certain vision per se, but they're sort of hollowing out this idea and are only using it as a strategy to meet their own goals. I think this is very much a combination because they are not in a position per se to pursue only their own goals, but they, they make a mosaic of what is available from outside and they try to combine it with their own vision. So very much an outcome is a negotiation that is perhaps not satisfactory neither to international donors, international organizations, nor to actors on the ground. But it is a midway, I believe, in any kind of field of development cooperation, be it women's uh, rights, be it good governance, civil society, etc. There is always a negotiation happening. And of course, it's a very much an emotional process as well, especially for those who were involved in it, who are those bridges between different conceptions, because they take also personal responsibility very often for the outcomes of these interactions. Wow, great. So we've already talked a bit about the impact of the pandemic on your research, but would you say there is a broader impact of the pandemic on your general field of research? Well, I, I think my research is at the crossroads of very different types of literature. So in the first place, there is the IR literature that has seen a shift, of course, towards the vaccine diplomacy, towards this new kind of relations that is happening that are actual now, right, on the global scene, because as researchers, we need to not only follow our own personal interest in research, but also the global trends and the needs. So this is one literature. The other body that where I position myself is more of area studies of Central Asian or post-Soviet, broadly speaking, studies. And I think there there is more of a hold. I mean, many people conduct research on the distance via WhatsApp, Zoom, etc. But it very much depends what you're interested in for all kinds of more ethnographic research that requires more immersion that is uh, not possible at the moment because of the pandemic. I always find this an interesting sort of angle to hear from our fellows is how you got interested in this line of research or what previous work you're basing this on that has influenced your thinking in this way of conceptualizing the behavior or the strategies that Tajikistan in this case uses to navigate the donor recipient country relationship. A brief answer to a very complicated question, which I think in the case of each researcher, there's also lots of personal trajectories involved, how we eventually, through different curves, arrived to certain research questions. But between my MA and my PhD, I was working as a development professional in Tajikistan in the context of development aid. So before I was a practitioner. And for many people, research on development aid starts in this way. This is my impression from the field that these were our personal questions that then we turned into research questions. As a practitioner, I was interested in this very ambiguous relations between local NGOs, local consultants, etc., local government officials uh, with international donors and how much negotiation, very subtle negotiation and resistance that is not explicit because it cannot be because you need to keep going with these relations, right? You need to maintain them to keep it coming. 
But I became interested in how to think about it in a different way, more academically. So then my PhD research was mainly on interactions between these international and mainly Western donors, the World Bank, UN agencies, USAID with local actors through the concepts of norm diffusion, localization um, in various fields. But now I try to build on that, but also extend it in a way that I am more and more interested in non-Western donors, which play a bigger and bigger role globally, but also in Central Asia and especially China, but also Turkey, the Gulf states, etc. So this is one of, let's say, thematical expansion in my research. But also I'm very interested in decolonial theory and what it can offer in post-socialist context, because this theory has not been used very widely. It's mostly applied to the Latin American context. So what it means that I want to look from the inside out, um, not from the views of donors, but from the views of actors on the ground and how they themselves see these global processes that are also enacted locally in, in their country, in my case, in Tajikistan. So this is very much about relocating the agency and giving local actors more agency in trying to conceptualize it. Wow, that's conceptually very, very rich and I think very useful to apply these theories, like colonial theory, as you say, to a setting in Central Asia where it has a very different trajectory than from many other places. So maybe one, one last kind of personal question, because you were one of the fellows who was not able to join us yet in Duisburg for your fellowship. How has your experience been so far? It has been a very positive experience. And I think people at the center, both uh, researchers, but also the fellows like myself, are trying to make the most of the situation. So I very much appreciate this lively virtual environment that gives you a feeling of community. I think this is very much happening and I have already after a few months benefited a lot from these discussions, which are very eye-opening because fellows have very different research backgrounds, like from law to anthropology to public policy, etc., but also topically and thematically. I never thought about internet governance, about climate governance as much as I do now. But this is challenging and stimulating as well. It makes me think differently about my own research and it makes me want to look for some points where we can meet conceptually with other fellows. Fantastic. I think the center can say mission accomplished if you feel inspired by the work with us. I do. I do. Thank you so much for these interesting insights, Carolina. Thank you. To find out more about the fellowship program and our application process or about the research done at the center, visit our website gcr21.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And all of the references and publications mentioned here today can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to Copa Radio on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your podcast platform of choice. Copa Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast, is produced by the Käthe Hamburger Kolleg Center for Global Cooperation Research at the University of Duisburg-Essen. Show host of this episode was Professor Janat Scholte. Additional voiceover, Janine Habert, Tobias Schäfer and Julia Fleck. Ideas, script and editing, Julia Fleck, Tobias Schäfer, Marike Gertsen, Janine Herbert, Ida Spingis and Lucia Rum. Cover design and social media, Milena Gäbe.